0: Welcome, listeners, to another edition of Matt Christman's Inebriated Past. Not sure if this one should technically be called an intoxicated past, but I'll leave that to the historians. So, today I want to talk about a subject that is incredibly important to understanding contemporary American culture, especially the uh the political culture that we find ourselves basically trapped within, this nightmare realm where we're just dealing with paranoid, clannish, irrational uh, groupings that uh, totally obscure the actual stakes of play in politics. And it's very frustrating. So I wanted to talk about that subject, and that is conspiracy theories. And I want to talk today about the history of conspiracy theories throughout America. From the dawn of the Republic and even before to to now. Uh, And I feel like this will give us a good understanding of exactly where we are, why we're there, and what it says about our politics. So uh, I'm saying this just to let you know that I'm going to be breaking this down into two chunks. First chunk will be a chronological description of the place, the conspiracy theory held in American culture throughout American history. The second part, I'm going to give some theories I have about conspiracy theories and how we should think about them. Now, I am doing a broad historical overview, but I think we need to remember that conspiracy theory culture, the kind that is relevant in the m- current moment, is very specifically grounded in late 20th century uh, era of deindustrialization and mass media saturation. It doesn't really make sense to talk about conspiracy theories in the 19th century and conspiracy theories in the 21st, and they're not really referring to the same thing, and I think that needs to be remembered. But I'm just still going to give the full overview just so you can see the way that the material reality changes things and kind of directs the flow of, of culture. Uh, and another point of clarification, when I'm talking about conspiracy theories and conspiracy theory culture it's not necessarily contained within it all of the verified and understood machinations of the U.S. covert operations and intelligence communities. Those the, the assassinations, buggings, experiments on human subjects, all part of the record and all part of statecraft for 20th century and 21st century capitalism. And those things, I want to stress, are distinct from conspiracy theory culture and the narratives of conspiracy theories, but are also integral to them. And when we get talk later on in the chronological breakdown, we talk about uh, the birth of the post-war conspiracy theory culture. Uh, I'll get more into what the connection is between the objective reality of covert operations and government secrecy and the fanciful conspiracy narrative that would be inspired in some cases by those real acts. So we'll get into that later. So if you're talking conspiracy theory culture in America, you have to start when there's a time of mass culture. So conspiracy culture in America can't really be thought of as a coherent thing uh, until you have the mass newspaper culture of the early 19th century, uh, which also brings with it a, a big ferment uh, uh, of things like west of Western expansion, uh, the conflict over slavery, the rise of financial and industrial capitalism is very important. Uh, and shit was changing, and it was making people uneasy and disempowered. This is the, also the era of the rise of the industrial revolution. So people are finding themselves thrown off of the land and into uncertain, uh, degrading work and in the mechanic shops of the East Coast cities, there had to be some sort of party responsible for this. Uh, And as we know, this is an era before class consciousness really had begun to even twinkle into existence in such a, a, a nascent working class, right? So there is no such real thing as class consciousness or class understanding. There's just the yeoman farmers of America who think of themselves as all independent individuals Uh, totally responsible for their own destiny, government's only there to help them carry it out, uh, finding themselves restricted in ways and and having their lives disrupted in ways that they could not have fucking ever imagined. Uh, And that made them feel out of power. It made them feel powerless. Uh, And there was no way to understand that relationship uh, because there was no language of class to express the mutual feelings of all the people suffering it. And so people had to come up with their own ideas. And during that early period, uh, you know, there were different pointing, fingers pointing at different places. Some people pointed at uh, the Eastern bankers, some people pointed at the, the slavocrats of the Southern aristocracy. Uh, and those all had some material basis. But there was one group that became an abstracted uh, force for evil, causing all the other maladies uh, in society. And those were the Freemasons. Now, the Freemasons, as anyone knows, are basically kind of a more pretentious Rotary Club or like Kiwanis. You know, like the it, like if the Elks Club, like to get nude in the in the banquet halls, that kind of thing. It's just a kind of frou frou, more self consciously sort of middle, uh, bourgeois. Uh, version of the uh, of a fraternal organization, but the thing about it is, is that because they take the cream of the urban middle class, the people who make made the first wave of of revolutions in Europe, and from the French Revolution to the revolutions of eighteen forty eight, that class uh, having this group of that they would get together in, talk about politics, talk about improving man, creating this notion that man is. To be improved, and there could be a plan, like the the plan of the of the Grand uh, Mason, you know, the the architect behind everything, and that you can push something in that direction. Uh, and the fact that they tended to not be affiliated with traditional uh, religious institutions, it made them incredibly suspicious. And in America, the spark that let this wave of Masonic paranoia uh, was the disappearance of a man in western New York named William Morgan who had been out about claiming to have uh, Masonic secrets he had learned inside the organization that he was going to tell the world. He was writing a book about the evils within Masonry that he had, he had found by infiltrating them. And uh, while, while he was on this campaign, he disappeared without a trace, and he was never found. And so the belief of many people in western New York is that this was a case of this group murdering a man. He was the Seth Rich of the 1820s, okay? And the furor about his uh, supposed death became, or uh, his alleged death became so frenzied that it actually led to the formation of a political party called the Anti-Masonic Party. It was formed in upstate New York uh, in 1828 and it was a single issue party and the issue was destroying the power of the masons which they claimed was behind all the other uh, all other powers in the country and responsible for all the ills of the country and what's so interesting about it is is that it really did graft people's pre-existing material hostilities onto a narrative that made sense of them the masonic party didn't last very long it only was around for a few years Uh, It won a few local uh, seats, but it it collapsed shortly after that. Many of the people from the anti-Masonic party ended up joining the Whigs, and from the Whigs became the basis for the uh, Republican Party. In fact, one of the chief founders of the anti-Masonic party, uh, Thurlow Weed, you want to talk 19th century names, Thurlow motherfucking Weed, uh, later became the chief advisor uh, and aide to William Seward was the preeminent Republican politician, governor of New York, uh, and uh, came in a close second to Lincoln for the ni- 1860 Republican presidential uh, nomination. So this guy was, the, the line from the anti-Masons to the Republican Party uh, uh, that overthrew slavery is a straight one, because a lot of those people were abolitionists, and they saw in the Masons the hand of the slaveocracy. And so they were able to make sense of it that way. Others might have seen, uh, you know, uh, just Eastern capital as being the 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 force that the Masons represented. Either way, it became a locus of anti-Southern um, and specifically anti-Jacksonian politics in upstate New York uh, because Jackson was well known to all at the time a Mason, much like the Founding Fathers had all been. And because his style of government had been so alienating to his opponents because he was so high-handed by dissolving the Bank of the United States by fiat, basically, uh, that they called him King Andrew. And the idea of him being this wannabe dictator was very strong. So the idea of this guy representing this ancient, shadowy organization as president was very tempting to people in the North. In fact, the party that ended up rising to oppose Jackson's Democratic Party, the Whigs, uh, named themselves after the faction in the British Parliament that was opposed to the king's prerogative. I mean, that was a self-conscious attempt to say, we are against kingly government. And so King Andrew became this figure that alienated many across the country, and they saw behind him some evil force. And for the people in uh, the burned-over districts, the righteous Uh, uh, second great awakened districts of upstate New York, Uh, it was the Masons behind him. It was the godless Masons. So that was the first expression of uh, conspiracy theory as a cultural element of of American culture. All right. Um, Now, a lot of these anxieties and hostilities that were represented in the anti-Masonic party, they ended up getting resolved by a little thing we like to call the American Civil War, uh, in which slavery was put paid to as an issue of national division. Uh, and as a result, conspiracy theory kind of broke off into just you know the culture of, of a country literally riven by civil conflict, which you could argue is sort of the end state of any culture that is getting neurotically obsessed with conspiracy theories. Uh, but that's another idea, and one that we probably shouldn't think about too hard, without getting bummed out. So... Conspiracy theory really re enters the larger cultural conversation in the post-World War II uh, era of the first Red Scare because the Victorian era had been the process of the American working class coming into its own, going from this scattered organization of greasy mechanics and mud sills who had made up this unorganized working class around the era of uh, the anti-Masons after the Civil War, the rapid industrialization and capital accumulation created this supercharged environment, whereby class consciousness emerged very quickly, and you had a huge explosion in labor militancy all throughout that era, from the Knights of Labor to the American Federation of, uh, the American Federation of Labor, to uh, eight-hour uh, workday protests, massive actions like the Homestead Strike, the Pullman Strike, the bloodiest history of of labor conflict in the West of any country in Europe. Uh, uh, or North America, for sure, and of industrial uh, unionism, anyway. And so there wasn't really a space for conspiracy theories because instead everybody was pointing their head in the right direction. Everybody could see the hand of capital at work in their lives and were combining to try to defeat it. So conspiracy theory was it was sort of squeezed out of the marketplace of ideas. It was only when the first Red Scare, though, when this Amer- this rising tide of socialism, which by that point had... There was a socialist party that was contesting elections. Jean Debs got over a million votes running for president, and then you had the IWW, this model, this syndicalist model for industrial unionization on of the entire American working class, and then the creation of a single revolutionary general strike. I mean, that was really something that was on the agenda in these guys' middle term uh, aspirations. And and then you had you know the business unionism of the AFL. Uh, Getting concessions uh, from management through uh, negotiation, so this huge tide had to break against something. And in America, thanks to this the Russian Revolution and um, the general reactionary nature that is un- of culture that is unleashed by warfare in this case, fighting World War One, they were able to take that energy and use it to scaremonger people uh, about this enemy within that needed to be wiped out. Uh, the scary foreign radicalism that was that had nothing to do with American culture or American people was uh, imported from outside, not part of us, certainly not a product of our horrible industrial exploitation. no no no, no no, uh, an evil alien infection and the answer for who 's spreading this infection is where conspiracy theory comes in. It is where you create grand narratives out of scant actual information begin to make inferences not based on anything's logical connection to its it, itself or the next thing in the chain, but rather how you think it connects it to a grander narrative. So evidence doesn't have to make sense it's it's connecting disparate el- evidence based on your idea of what what you're working backwards I'll put it this way you're working backwards from a conclusion. that's what conspiracy theory logic is the you you say this is resp- these people are responsible for this. And then how can I prove it? You backward fill your information. And that's the that's the nature of the beast. And so during this Red Scare, the narrative that a lot of people in America grabbed onto, and it was one that was very popular in Europe and had been for centuries, uh, is that it was uh, the Jews. It was a conspiracy of the Jews uh, to destabilize and undermine Western civilization. If this sounds any, any way familiar, please stop me. And uh, they're the face, there were very out and proud public faces for this point of view. Um, Henry Ford, the, the fucking Ed, uh, the goddamn Steve Jobs uh, of his day, was out there promoting the protocols of the elders of Zion, uh, requiring the sales of his newspaper, The International Jew, uh, in Ford dealerships. This is like if your iPad came preloaded with the Turner Diaries. That's what this is like. It's fucking insane, and you also had popular cultural figures uh, like Father Coughlin, uh, the Catholic priest who who pointed to the Jewish origins of uh, Bolshevism. Uh, and but the real the real magic though comes in in that. So as the Great Depression sets in, everyone's material condition is getting worse. They can see that their institutions aren't working for them, and they know why. So they are alienated from the economy and they are alienated from capitalism because they see all it does is immiserate them and exploit them to no gain. But they cannot accept the leftist notion that that means capitalism is to blame or that we need socialism because they've too deeply associated that with this alien other. There has to be another explanation. And so the most popular one conceived of by folks like Coughlin in the United States, folks like Hitler in Germany, was the unified... Field theory that fascism created that said that both Bolshevism and finance capitalism were both controlled by Jews, that the war between them was a phony one meant to undermine Gentile white societies and destroy them from within. It doesn't make any sense, obviously. What is, what is in it for the Jews to destroy the entire material reality that they've built and benefit from? Where is it to, to their benefit to destroy the thing that creates wealth that they are the ones who control? Why would they do that? Uh, and there is no answer to that because that's the key thing that conspiracy theories do is that they give you an answer to the ineffable elements of, of, of cause and effect and, and of historical theory and of, de- of you know, your understanding of the world. It's like who can, who can know the mind of the monster? Who can know they're different than us? We can't conceive of what they could be, want to do. So that just offloads on us the responsibility of making our theory make sense. Uh, this contrasts with the, the uh, Marxist analysis that says people on top want to keep being on top. They want to keep exploiting. They want to exploit resources to their benefit and to their exclusive benefit. And that all of their decision making is based on those incentives. I think that's a more plausible reason or uh, explanation. But that one makes you have to confront capitalism head-on, and they didn't want to do that for a bunch of reasons, culturally and also uh, materially. Many, many of their class interests were with the ruling class. But so people who are squeezed by capitalism, they don't blame capitalism. They blame some manifestation of capitalism secretly controlled by Jews. And that is why August Bebel called anti-Semitism the socialism of fools, because it is someone expressing their alienation but in an idiotic way and at the wrong target. So that's where the ur-fascist theory of all explanations, which we see picked up now with alt-right guys and all this, like they're all picking up the same thread, which says that all the problems, back then it was communism and uh, finance capital, now it's Islam and finance capital. Uh, it's, it's just the same nonsensical story. So that's where that came from. Uh, was born after World War I uh, in the need to break uh, labor power in the United States, frankly. And they were largely successful uh, to our our great detriment. The Union movement was set back a great deal, and it was only the Great Depression uh, that allowed for rapid mobilization and the ability to extract reforms from capital. Okay, now all of that had to kind of get stowed for the big fight against the Nazis, uh, which according to a lot of these people who were talking about earlier, uh, were not the enemy we should have been fighting. But anyway, uh, so there's a brief sort of hostil- uh, cessation of hostilities during the popular front war against fascism. But, of course, as soon as the war ends, the, the veil has to be brought back down with a vengeance. The, the connective tissue between world communism and American work, labor movement has to be cut instantly so that you get your second Red Scare. Talking John Birch Society blues. That's right. And this was America's just spontaneous, massive rejection of the post of the New Deal and the, and the Cold War sort of uh, state of play. And eventually, over time, civil rights consensus. But it started with a rejection of the New Deal or an idea belief that the New Deal had gone as far as it needed to and needed to stop which is why you had a, there was a huge strike wave after World War II, directly after World War II, 1946, 47, massive spike in strikes because there had been no strike pledges all through the war, and that had led to this buildup of tensions that all exploded at once. And this led to a huge reaction against the labor movement. And in 1948, there was a massive Republican wave election that gave the Republicans veto-proof majorities to pass the Taft-Hartley Act which really was the thing that drove the stake in the heart of the American labor movement. It just took years and years for it to bleed out. But that was the political culture of the Red Scare. And in this immediate World War II aftermath, the Jews kind of had to go on the back burner as the villain. Uh, Antisemitism really took took it on the chin with that whole Nazi genocide thing. So... The Jews were the, the Jewish part of Judeo Bolshevism went away, and it was just the Bolsheviks and communists took over that position in culture as the as the evil force manipulating everything, but from behind the scenes. Uh, there were some few hardcore dudes like uh, like the Reverend Gerald L. K. Smith, uh, who kept it real, as it were, about uh, about anti Semitism and how it was really the Jews responsible, and the Roman Catholics, of course, too, uh, in trying to destroy American virtue. But this was the era of the John Birch Society, of uh, of fluoride in the water, the first chemtrails, uh, and the belief that uh, uh, Dwight Eisenhower was a communist agent. So this is the paranoid style that Richard Hofstetter talked about in his seminal uh, book. But this movement was, this, this strain of conservatism, according to the narratives of conservatives, was definitively destroyed when... William F. Buckley publicly distanced himself from the John Birch Society, which, according to conservatives, ushered in an age of reason in the Republican uh, Party and in the conservative movement. Obvious horseshit. I mean, come on, I don't have to tell you people how much horseshit that is, but uh, that's what they said. Instead, uh, that that conspiratorial worldview, that seeking of an other to be responsible for all of the ills within society because there could be no contradictions within American society, uh, that's the backbone. Of, of hostility to the, the liberal order among uh, the disaggregated American reactionary middle class. Okay, so at this point, uh, as you can see, conspiracy theory, is, in the 20th century anyway, has been broadly a reactionary movement. It's a movement of the right. It's a movement to make sense of social change uh, by creating scapegoats because it can't confront the real heart of the problem, capitalism. So as a result of that, because of the strong labor movement in the United States, conspiracy theories on the left were relatively muted. People felt like, no, things work out in the open because look at us—we're changing the world uh, with good old collective bargaining. But then the '60s happened, and a new strain of conser- of conspiracy theory thinking uh, would now emerge on the left. Uh, the difference is is that on on the left, in this case, there are a lot of real things that happen, actual documented events that gave people a very justified sense of paranoia about what their government was capable of and i'm not even talking about the big headline making assassinations of JFK and RFK and MLK and honestly even if i i i am agnostic as to what happened in most of those cases i have uh, i have gut feelings but i really don't feel comfortable making any kind of historical judgment on any of those big ones but just think about how those things all happening that quickly in, in succession would make the average people person feel like there's no way this is a coincidence. There's no way there are that many lone nuts that just spring out of nowhere to cut down the most prominent people on the left. That just doesn't make sense. So it's, it's understandable. But then we talk about the smaller things that are not debatable, that actually happen. The, the murder of uh, Fred Hampton by the FBI, COINTELPRO in general, the fucking MKUltra. Okay, this is something that if somebody came out and said it happened now and we didn't know any better, it would sound like a complete fucking sci fi goof em up. The CIA took fucking acid and and exposed Americans to it in order to observe their result, their reactions as part of a, a long term brainwashing experiment to see how tractable the human brain was to suggestion and interrogation. That really happened. One part of it was called Operation Midnight Climax. The CIA rented out a bordello, put two-way mirrors in all the bedrooms, and paid sex workers to douse their fucking clients with LSD and then filmed the results. All of that happened in this time frame. And they didn't, people didn't know about it all at once, but it's dribbled out ever since. And so this is when most of America was exposed to the real nature of covert operations, the real nature of what it is to be a superpower with uh, an intelligence arm and how it cultivates the garden of capitalism uh, with just behind-the-back murder fests and sneaky dealings of all kinds, that that's how it lubricates the gears of, of, uh, of democracy. It's like covert ops are the lube in the piston between capitalism and democracy because democracy is necessary to give capitalism legitimacy, but democracy can't be allowed to actually threaten capitalism. And so that's why you prevent the friction from becoming too great by lubricating it with fucking special ops, with intelligence, with state propaganda efforts, covert assassinations, all that stuff. That is how you keep democracy in check. So that's where people get this first exposure. And it leads to a lot of meaningful revelations about the way the state works, but also really understandably gives people a desire for grand narratives of conspiracy, which these smaller acts are just parts of, a, a desire to knit everything together into one satisfying story, which we all have. It's We've been trained to have it by what we observe in media all the time. This is also the first generation to get conspiracy culture expressed in popular media. This, is the, uh, the, this led to the 70s in which you had such amazing great conspiracy movies as Parallaxville, uh, the highly underrated Winter Kills, uh, Executive Action, which is a movie where big Hollywood stars sit around tables and just plan the Kennedy assassination, released 10 years after that event. Um, the fucking Capricorn One where they do the fake Mars landing to make the argument that actually it was a fake moon landing. And it, all of it anchored by a movie about a real fucking conspiracy, All the President's Men. So the 70s is when we get leftist and broad pop culture conspiracy theory as part of the American cultural conversation. And of course, like all culture did, conspiracy theory moved hard right in the 80s, thanks to a little thing we like to call the satanic panic. So in the 1980s saw a Reaganite uh, reclamation of American culture from these effete libertines who had become dissipated and perverse. But that led to anxiety. Uh, if we are the good homespun folk, how have we been allowing our our vital roles as parents to be supplanted by by mass media figures from the West Coast and strangers who we give our kids to in terms of the people that we that we have raise our children, because the '80s, of course, saw you know uh, uh, the contraction of possibilities for working class people, the rise of uh, two earner households where both parents had to work, and that meant kids being sent to daycare facilities. So you are not in; you don't have uh, influence over your children the way you used to both in terms of where they spend the day and what they're consuming because of a popular culture that is not created by anyone that you recognize uh, as having the same values as you. And so the satanic panic emerges as a alienation of all of that anxieties into one form, force. In this case, it's satanic cults, massive satanic cults, that in some of these uh, uh, theories and in some of these court cases, because in a lot of cases, bogus accusations of sex abuse at uh, daycare centers Led to massively uh, popular in terms of uh, media attention trials in which these incredibly outlandish claims were were put out, including the idea of nationwide satanic networks of people ritually abusing children, uh, flying uh, on private jets to to special sex islands. You, I mean, if you don't recognize the parallels to QAnon and Pizzagate, then. Uh, you're a little slow on the uptake, I'm sorry. That is the p- template that we're going to later see come back with uh, QAnon and with Pizzagate. But it reflects some of the same anxieties about about not being the person who influences your children, who, who guides and protects them. Your sense of feeling powerlessness as a parent, that's what it boils down to. So these tales of of children being uh, abducted and abused uh, to please Satan, another case where the the motive is obscured by ideology, in this case, and and spirituality. This idea that Satan wants only for our destruction. He has no positive agenda. He has no goals for himself. He only wants the destruction of humans and the suffering of humans. Well, then that's that's not a a world that's recognizably ours. Because in our world, people do things for their benefit. But there is no benefit when Satan's doing things because he's just making humans suffer. So, once again, we're denying the material roots of actions and creating this eternal being to come down and determine our, uh, our lives for us. So, I'm getting now to my absolute favorite period of conspiracy theory history uh, the, the greatest, the, the golden age. I will not hear anyone else argue otherwise. You can, you can spare me with your, your kitschy, John Waters esque 50s Red Scare shit. Uh, even the satanic panic, I tip my hat to, to, that's particularly just grand goulion ghoulishness on TV every day. I mean, amazing. But to me, nothing beats the 90s. Tin foil hats at the end of history. This is where conspiracy theory as culture came into its own. Because the 90s were, as I have said before, the last decade in American history. We don't have decades anymore. It's just a smear of of things happening. Differentiation has been abolished by the speed of of capital acceleration. We're just falling towards the black hole of capital and stretching out, and and it all is just blurring together. So the nineties are the last decade, and it was a time when we thought that orderly, sequential time was going to be go on forever. It was the triumph of neoliberal capitalism was the banishment of all external enemies. The USSR was gone. There was no more bad guy, no wolf at the door, no bear at the door, rather. And we were in charge of our destinies as Americans and as capitalists and as as Christians. Uh, And this was all summed up uh, by a phrase uttered by President George H.W. Bush, a dawning of a new world order. And those words just set off like a tuning fork in the heads of millions, millions of, of mostly white American males mostly who felt the walls closing in when they heard that, who felt that actually we are now being corralled. There is no escape from any of these institutions. There is no escape from the, the, this present. So that means that we are being caged because we are losing our ability to choose anything other than what is being presented to us. And when you see something like NAFTA happen, where they spent years arguing for it, it was massively unpopular, it was created by and conceived of by the Bush administration, and then after a a, a contentious presidential election, his opponent wins, Bill Clinton, and then he promptly fucking passes NAFTA. The sense that that's got to create is that, oh, we're not in charge of any of this. This is on rails. And for these guys, especially guys who've been affected by this, maybe laid off uh, by one of these factories relocating, this sense of an ending frontier, this sense of losing that American sense of personal freedom, and of course this is all tied into white supremacy I'm sorry I mean obviously you know this is the frontier mindset of, of the the manifest destiny generation. this is the I, this is the Frederick Jackson Turner go west Horace Greeley ass idea that this is virgin land for the taking that every man's right is his right to just set off one day and make his new fortune. And all of that is predicated on land being grabbed and exploited and expropriated from its, uh, its owners, the native tribes, and then all the value being pulled from that land by enslaved labor. Uh, but per full freedom for the white man. And that is a thread that goes through American culture to this day. And, that sense was being very much threatened by that end-of-history feeling of the, of the 90s. And so this creates a need to there be a narrative, a dramatic expression of this anxiety of encroaching capitalist hegemony, And so on the ground you had things like the Michigan militia. Uh, you had things like Ruby Ridge and uh, the Montana militia. And, of course, the, the fucking granddaddy of them all, Timothy McVeigh, a man who read the Turner Diaries and saw the Waco burnings and saw a government that was controlling every aspect of life and decided he was gonna he was gonna fight back the way he would learned to during the battle of uh, during Operation Desert Storm. So that's what's happening on the ground. And then in culture, you see the rise of conspiracy entertainments like The X Files, uh, which is the definitive program of that decade, really. Uh, and in this decade, these cultural expressions of conspiracy mindset are centered around the figure of the alien. The alien has taken the place of the communist or the Jew uh, or the mason. The, the the alien is the outside force manipulating human uh, life for its own goals. Uh, now, sometimes that is a thinly veiled allegory for Jews, as was the case, you know, with the communists. But for a lot of people, aliens become this avatar of power, the avatar of the of the supernatural, almost technological and economic power that the governments uh, and corporations of the world hold over you. That is the alien. And that finds its expression in things like X-Files and a bunch of movies about alien abductions that were very popular at that time. And you had folk understandings. This is the decade when words like black helicopter, uh, ideas like crop circles and cattle mutilations and the fear of FEMA camps all become part of common parlance we all understand these references because that's conspiracy theory culture making its way into the mainstream and it all all this language was created in the 90s uh, by popular culture that fixated on this idea of an alien threat to more baroque uh stuff involving reptilians or um, interdimensional beings or demons in some cases all of these were expressions of that same anxiety but this figure, the, the alien, he represents the important element of conspiracy theory is that it has a source of transcendence. It gives you an idea, a way to transcend this disenchanted world we live in. Uh, the same way that, that in the 80s, Satan could. The alien represents a power beyond our understanding, which means the world is not as we see it, which means there is more possibility than we have been given, and that there is a hope for transcendence. That we can be beyond, that this isn't as good as that we can make it. That this isn't the only world that exists. And that's what the aliens represent. So this, uh, this current, which has, it's really a tapestry of stuff. Aliens are one of the big motifs. Gov- government, uh, New World Order stuff is, is a, a main motif. But woven within that is just this amazing tapestry of, of different strains and ideas. Rosicrucians, the Illuminati. Uh, a Bilderberger group, all of these just amazing tales. Uh, one guy, William Cooper, wrote this book, Behold a Pale Horse, that wove everything together, all of history, into this massive saga of, of alien infiltration and takeover of America, of world governmental institutions. Uh, and every single conspiracy theory is like a subsection of this greater tale. It's, it's amazing. Uh, he would go on to be shot in a uh, shootout with police two days after nine eleven so you know, who knows what that means? Draw your own conclusions, but all of this was powered by by books, by radio uh and by television. I was talking about x files obviously, I'm talking about early internet websites, and of course, but the two guys that did it, one Art Bell, who provided this beautiful oral soundtrack of alien abduction stories and and tales from Area 51 and all these amazing paranormal first-hand accounts broadcast all night uh, all across the country. And then uh, on tele- on uh, screens, Alex Jones. It's hard to remember that now because he's now basically just a, a, a mega a water carrier. But in those days, Alex Jones was just an electric mix of conspiracy theories uh, that he, he, was, he just embodied this wholesale repudiation of of the settled uh, neoliberal order were or for everything that meant and it was it encompassed every element of reactionary and leftist uh, disenchantment with the moment so he could be everything to everybody because he encompassed all of these tales and his greatest coup uh, and the thing that made him I honestly I think it made him I, I think it carried him through maybe the lean years of post nine eleven when he kind of had to just market himself as a, as a truther kind of exclusively and limited his audience in a way. It's been his uh, signature achievement. And I think it was what carried him through the lean years till he could b- become a branded figure like he is now. So one of the parts of the tapestry of conspiracy theories that all underlies these grand narratives of world order and, and humans being turned into livestock for some great unveiling and some great culling was the little get-together known as a bohemian grove bohemian grove is a retreat in northern california redwoods outside of san francisco every summer and this has been true for since the late 19th century titans of industry finance uh, diplomacy uh, and government and technology and everything Uh, the muckety mucks who you would think would be in charge of the world uh, come together for two weeks or a weekend of of drinking, of 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 sex, uh, and most importantly, connections. Uh, there are the the guys give each other little. It was almost like TED talks before TED talks, like TED talks with a child sacrifice. They would just talk about different areas of their expertise to each other and make the connections that lubricate the upper realms of of uh, world economic and uh, political power, and they've been doing that for for uh, over 100 years now on its face it's pretty absurd these and brazen these rich assholes getting together to just in our face hash out how the world's going to be divided up but there's something also sort of banal about that right the idea that they can just do that the idea they can just be like yeah we're going to get together we're not we're even going to tell you we're going to get together we're going to come out of it and have gotten all of your lives destinies We've all swapped them like horses. We have that power over your life. That's kind of a bummer. Nobody wants to hear that. So what Alex Jones did to make Bohemian Grove a, a, a narrative that would pop and make him interesting and, and, and make people want to listen to him is if I said, no, they don't just get together and hang out and make deals. They are doing satanic rituals involving child abuse, cannibalism, uh, and sacrifice. Two evil gods and that that is what bohemian grove is about. And now you got to admit that's a much more striking narrative. That's like, oh, wow. You know, it also gives you the idea that this is a movie and you could go in there and like find the evil god and like, you know, say the incantation and throw an amulet at him and he'd explode and go back to his own universe and the world would be saved. You know, there's a, there's a there's a narrative there which means there could be a happy ending as opposed to just this sad, brutal, out in its open Expression of domination and confidence in the rule, which is what Bohemian Grove actually is. But the funniest thing is, the motherfucker made good on it because he snuck in the late 90s, snuck onto the grounds of Bohemian Grove during the actual weekend with a camera crew and recorded an actual ritual sacrifice. Now, no one was killed, but what actually happened, and this is something that happens at the beginning of every Bohemian Grove get together is that there is a giant bonfire put at the base of a 20-foot-tall stone owl named Mammon. They call it the cremation of care. And the idea is, is that they are coming here to have fun, and they're burning up all of their troubles, and they're not going to bother them while they're they're in the woods. Now, the actual origin of this is that the Grove was created by a bunch of dandy theater folk in San Francisco who wanted to like put on a little fun thing and it has all and, and doing something like that has all the hallmarks of ivy League fancy boys it 's the kind of shit they love to do over there. They still do look at the fucking hasty pudding club where they all get together and put bras on and, and giggle. They love that shit they love the, the fake dramatic the amateur dramatics of it, and so the idea of oh we 're going to burn a fire in front of the stone owl coming down and oh it's very droll oh we're having such a fun time by the way there's also a fucking talent show at bohemian grove at the last night of it like fucking summer camp richard nixon called it the uh f wordiest thing he'd ever seen on the nixon tapes but so that's the just it's an expression of the kind of class they're part of but of course regular people don't have those frames of reference so when they see a sacrifice in front of a stone owl they see a fucking sacrifice in front of a stone owl. Like, holy shit, these guys are doing ritual shit. They're actually supernaturally connected. They're, they're fucking channeling dark forces to rule over us for the benefit of, like, the Satan or something. So that was, and so that made Alex Jones's career, and that sort of narrative was the pervading narrative of the Chris Carter 90s. And all of that kind of went along in this anxiety about oh are we being you know what's happening are we being turned into sheeple are we turning into sheeple oh my god and all of that navel gazing it all ended one beautiful September morning in 2001 911 was the biggest event that had happened in the lifetime of most people living in America something that big by definition has to have correspondingly massive causes and due to racism and also just the fact that frankly it's not traditionally a very impressive enemy i mean the the country that fought the nazis being told that this horrible pearl harbor style attack is the work of a shadowy network of non-state actors who we can't meet in open battle that's a fucking bummer even also even forgetting the racism of just people thinking there's no way that those people could pull this off so those forces plus Another classic thing of conspiracy thinking is that people observed, wow, 9-11, that sure did help the Republicans. Holy shit, they're really taking advantage of this. Oh, my God, we're invading Iraq, a country that had nothing to do with 9-11. It's almost like they had that in their back pocket the whole time. Oh, what's this? This organization that's filled with people who are now staffing that uh, administration is talking about how we need a new Pearl Harbor to make American policy go in our direction? Wow." Somebody sure benefited from this, and from that central insight, they work backward to, to make the evidence fit. And that's like the true existence of, of U.S. intelligence uh, agency skullduggery. This redounds to make conspiracy theory more credible because 9-11 was a huge boon to the neoconservative project. There's no way to argue it wasn't. Uh, the only thing to do is just to try to work from the evidence. Uh, rather than from the top down. And remember, one very important thing to remember when you're trying to evaluate these claims is, well, how would things be different if 9-11 was an inside job? Would it have changed anything else about the political reality that we face? And it really doesn't. It wouldn't change a damn thing. So it's one of those things where it's a literal distraction because it's describing something that's not central to the to processing of history and of, of the human fate. Okay, so with Bush in the White House and the conservatives riding tall in the saddle, conservative theory in the aughts was largely left-wing, broadly, but not even specifically left-wing, trutherism. That was the locus of left-wing conspiracy thinking. Uh, was, was, was a, it was all about 9-11. And the conservatives have nothing to complain about. It. The world made sense to them. They were finally winning. They were going to remake the world in their image. There was going to be a fucking uh, California pizza kitchen in every country in the world. And then it all went to shit. The Bush administration lost all credibility, both here and abroad, and Barack Obama was elected president. And Barack Obama's election was generally a traumatic moment for uh, the American lumpen reactionary, just a bolt from the blue of nightmare, their worst thoughts about what could have happened after bush were were exceeded uh and i'd say as bad as it would have been if hillary had won they kind of knew what it was like to hate hillary it was a long-standing hate it was it was the the parameters were well established this this hate for obama just came out of the blue and it was fucking unbridled and it just unleashed this absolute frenzy which was channeled by a bunch of different stuff from the tea party to cultural hucksters like Glenn Beck, who became the Alex Jones of movement conservatism as opposed to the Alex Jones of sort of vague uh, white working class people who watch a lot of YouTube. And Glenn Beck, on his show during the Obama years, where he would put out his massively convoluted web of actors, all of whom were conspiring behind the scenes to turn Barack Obama's presidency into some thousand-year progressive Reich involving all of these little-known thinkers like Saul Alinsky and Francis Fox Piven, enacting this decades-long plan. He is just basically opening up your grandpa's head and shining a light in there and just show, seeing, showing you what's going on. Like This is what your dad's brain looks like now. That is what Glenn Beck was doing. And so people loved watching it. It, it was absolutely riveting. Uh, and in this new era, this new right-wing era of conspiracy thinking, if it's not Obama directly, who's behind Obama? And the answer is not the Jews. I guess this is what you would call a cultural progress. It's not the Jews. It's a Jew, a specific Jew, George Soros, who embodies all of the the classic tropes of the alien, scheming Jew who wants to destroy the world just to destroy it, who's the damn joker. And that that's always what it is, but it used to be, Jews as a race, now it's one guy. One specific Jew. So now they, you can't call him an anti-Semite because it's all been concentrated into one dude, uh, George Soros, who wants to destroy the world for no reason. Just like the Jews would have wanted to. A guy who is a billionaire fucking currency trader, who is incredibly wealthy and has only pursued wealth his whole life. No, he's going to blow up the world for no fucking reason, just because he's not one of us. So that's what Soros is he's he's he's. They've perfected the anti-Semitism by channeling it into just one guy, and that really is the difference. When you talk about like what's the difference between the anti-Semitic and the the non anti-Semitic right, it's is it Soros or all the Jews? That's the only difference. All right, so all of this is leading to the current moment in which the spread of social media has proliferated conspiracy theory thinking in a way that. is almost unprecedented. It's like it's like an aerosolized conspiracy theory. Put it in the fucking drinking water, in the goddamn air ducts. We're all exposed to it every moment of the day. It settles on us like fucking radioactive dust. Uh, that is what uh, conspiracy theory is, with the supercharger of um, of social media. So now we're in a post Iraq War post. 2008 collapse world where all institutional uh, faith is gone. No one has any trust of institutions, uh, public or private. Uh, they don't. Nobody believes the media. Nobody believes any politician except the one that they have a personal emotional connection to uh, and says the words that, that trigger their, their limbic systems. So we are now more primed than ever for funneling the world into a conspiratorial mindset. And that is what we have been doing like gangbusters. We know that the libs have of course grasped uh, Russiagate as their Shibboleth, that is their explanation. Putin replaces Soros for them as this figure. It's a little. It makes a little bit more sense because in that one, Putin at least wants to take over the world to rule it. He doesn't just want to destroy it. So points for coherence on that. But other than that, it's the same gibberish. Uh, more interestingly, though, we have on the right, Pizzagate and QAnon, which is an amazing example of boomers finding the internet this is taking the blueprints that they saw on the Glenbeck's chalkboard and using them as coordinates to pilot a journey onto the information superhighway that we'll never forget and so there's two things about uh, social media that hyper viralize conspiracy theory one is the decentralized nature of the information and the way that it flattens all sources of information so that for especially for a boomer who grew up getting the authoritative news, capital N, from Walter Cronkite. He goes to PatriotGun.Eagle. He gives it the same mental weight. So that is one element of social media that spreads conspiracies very well. The other is uh, gamification because social media isn't just watching a video, isn't just looking at a meme. It's posting a meme. It's posting comments. It's writing on Twitter. It's doing hashtags. It's harassing uh, the the bad guys and cheering on the good guys. It's engaging, and by engaging in it, you are able to make it uh, a game. You're trying to rack up points, faves, retweets, all that, but also you are uh, making the game as it happens. You are interacting with it. You are the investigator. It's not just watching Glenn Beck. You're up there with Glenn Beck, writing stuff on the chalkboard with him. You've turned it into a game. You can find the evidence. You can look at the clues. You could put the clues together, and you now know. Uh, It's like uh, watching Blue's Clues where you're yelling at them. No, it's the the rake, and then they'll go, yay, and it's like, I'm helping. That's what you get to do. So those are big components of why QAnon and Pizzagate are so popular. But the other big ones are, one, the fantasies of the extreme depravity of your enemies in it. They're not even just worshiping Satan. They're actually eating babies' brains. While they're alive, some of this stuff about a dream of Chrome and all that shit, the theory is the kid has to be alive when you're eating it so you get all of his life power. When your enemies are like that, you are justified in doing anything to them. And so this is psychologically for these super reactionary uh, right-wing people that are giving themselves justification for what they want to do to them. They're justifying their authoritarianism. Remember, QAnon is just a fantasy of a coup, all of it. The whole point is we're counting down the day until they just arrest all of the uh, political opposition in government and then uh, civil society, which is a fucking coup by any definition. But they have justified it because, no, they're eating baby brains. I'd say, But the most crucial uh, and interesting thing that it represents, and I think, frankly, seeing how authoritarian they are, this is a little bit comforting, is that this model of political engagement is defined as all of these conspiracy theory mindsets are. Uh, by inaction, by powerlessness, you are, even though you're engaging with the game, you're engaging with the evidence, maybe, if you're a QAnon person, you are, at the end of the day, spectating. You are watching a thing unfold. You are watching the plan of the White Hats and the good Trump people play out. And you can yell at the screen like you're watching Blue's Clues, and that makes it more fun. But it is essentially a spectacle. And that is the end point of American political engagement is to realize the degree to which politics is fundamentally a spectacle in which the average person has no ability to interact in a meaningful way. There is no input that they can put into this thing that's going to get anything resembling their will coming out of it. The voting won't work. Mobilizing won't work that just the sense people have that there is no changing this, there's no shaping any of this, we are absolutely in the thrall of this, this spectacle, then we might as well fucking enjoy it instead of swimming against the current and trying to fantasize that we're even pushing anything in any direction. We can just watch it and we can root for the white hats. Ooh, ooh, oop the, the unsealed, oh, they're going to unseal the indictments that's happening. Oh, my God. It's going to, we're going to do it. There's no difference. That is the end point. That's the final disillusioned end point of participation in American politics uh, is realizing its uselessness and embracing your own position as a totally powerless spectator who just wants a, a, a better show. You want to see an example of the powerlessness at the heart of Puinon. Take the case of Vincent Fuchsia. So Vincent Fuchsia was this guy who was just going to Trump rallies in a Santa costume And one day, some Q guy took a picture of him, and I guess using uh, some seeing stones and a hat or something, decided that he actually looked like JFK Jr. And soon, totally outside of the prompting of Q himself, all by their own, these little detectives create a narrative where uh, John F. Kennedy Jr. faked his own death in a plane crash in the late 90s in order to go into hiding and investigate his father's assassination which he eventually was able to connect to, George H.W. Bush. And then eventually he worked behind the scenes to help elect Trump, is now working behind the scenes with Trump to defeat the deep state. Just an amazing, an amazing tale. I mean, you just step back and you're like, holy crap. And they even created a whole theory where George magazine uh, was originally supposed to help launch uh, Trump to prominence. And that there's a quote in one of the editions where, John F. Kennedy Jr. is saying how great a president Trump would be but, and that all people would uh, understand and agree that he was the leader that they were seeking. Just, you know, John the Baptist shit. And so now their story is every time they see this dope show up at one of these rallies, they're like, oh, my God, it's him. And just think about that for a second. So this is their ideal narrative, right? This is a guy, this is an action hero narrative where this guy goes undercovers, man in the iron mask, like, fucking uh, gets plastic surgery, skulks around to get revenge for his father's death against these deep state sickos. So what does he do when the trap is about to be sprung? He just starts going to the fucking Trump rallies. This guy who went through all of that trouble to do this thing, this multi-decade plan, and now part of it is to, at the zero hour, reveal himself in public and just hang out at the exact same fucking... Suburban gymnasium with the same room full of dentists and, and auto body dealership owners, and listen to this guy talk about how he almost had sex with Courtney Thorne Smith at an ESPN zone. And that's the same thing you're doing. He's just watching the same thing you're watching. E- even at this vital moment, your key guy is not doing anything, he's just watching the president do something. But like I said, uh, that is all related to the essential powerlessness at the heart of conspiracy thinking. Uh, That's one of my two big theses about conspiracy thinking is, is that, one, it's about being powerless and then expressing a political imagination around that powerlessness as its basic premise. But the opposite of conspiracy theory thinking is class solidarity, class consciousness, thinking into class terms. It clarifies all the mysticism and, and makes his, it makes the array of forces much more coherent and, and it just makes everything make sense. Um, it really is the glasses from They Live. And this gets to a reason why I don't think the left can be ever really successfully harness the energy of conspiracy theory. I've had people tell me, look, if conspiracy theory is a way people understand language in this atomized America, and most Americans are atomized, wouldn't it be easier to try to get to them through the conspiracy theory than by trying to create a class consciousness that's not there? It's, just, it's the easy way. Go, go, just go around the just go around the corner. Just be like, hey, you like conspiracy theories? Well, what about the conspiracy called capitalism? And I see the lure of that, but I think it's a dead end uh, because conspiracy theory is the antithesis of class consciousness. What conspiracy theory is? It is what fills the space left where America's class consciousness should be. The degree to which class consciousness is missing in America, the hole, the sucking void, is filled with conspiracy theory. So the reason for this is that every exploited worker, and that's the majority of people in any culture, uh, including the majority, mass majority of people who believe deeply in conspiracy theories, experiences alienation. So it doesn't matter what you believe. It doesn't matter if you're a, a, a nationalist, if you're a Republican, if you're a Protestant. if However you stack the deck of your synapses and decide that's a personality, you are feeling alienated from your labor because you are being alienated from your labor. That's not a, a subjective experience. It is an objective phenomenon, and the body responds as it would. Because having your uh, surplus value expropriated is inherently alienating. It feels bad. You're not in control of your life. You're not in control of your livelihood. It creates hostility, resentment, and the sense of frustrated powerlessness. And that's true of whatever you believe on your surface of your mind. However much of a real true-believing capitalist you think you are, you're still having that alienation. And ideology is what you use to direct the resentment and hostility you feel. And at base, class consciousness is just people comparing notes about their sense of alienation. It's about people in the same workplace working closely saying, hey, our boss is such a piece of shit. You, you think the boss sucks too? Oh, God, he's awful. Oh, you know what? I was just thinking that. I didn't know if anybody else thought that either. And you just all find out that, oh, we all have the same source of alienation and angst. We all, we all are feeling bad for the same reasons. We know who's responsible, and it's the guy taking our fucking labor. And that's how unions begin. It's just people comparing notes at their workplace about their feeling of exploitation. Now, Americans, especially after World War II, and that's when our modern conspiracy culture was formed, thanks to mass media and the suburbanization, we lost touch with each other as workers. We stopped comparing notes. Uh, the big factories that have always been the engines of, of the working class, wherever they sprout, broken up, shipped, shipped to other countries, shipped to right-to-work states but even before that. Uh, uh, working-class communities broke up with uh, urban renewal, segregation, and, uh, and suburbanization. Mass media filling the void left by socialization. And instead of socializing with your fellow workers, you're socializing with actors and, and performers, all of whom are on the side of capital and are reproducing capitalist notions for your consumption. That all fills the space where that conversation once was that leads to class consciousness. And because of this, American workers, they can only process their alienation internally. They can only ask their own self what's going on. They are ill-equipped to identify the real cause of the distress because they don't have the notes to compare. They can't talk to others and make these conclusions. All they have is their own single perception and their own head full of pre-existing notions. Their subjective experience, filtered through a lifetime of personal prejudices, religious belief, and incredibly crucially exposure to that mass media I was talking about, that takes the place of collective note-taking. And so that turns our alienation into a story, like the stories we watch in movies and TV, stories with beginning and middle and end, uh, identifiable villains and heroes, sense, reassurance, uh, immortality really, because you know, you're at every part of the story, you're there. At no point do you die as the, as the person uh, observing it. And that's why conspiracy theory is inherently reactionary. And it really can't be used for leftist ends because that is antithetical to keeping yourself in the dream, uh, to keeping your ordered universe sense together. You know, people say, go to the flow, just use the stories to point to the real enemy. But the thing is, they will always replace capitalism with something else. I mean, look at Pizzagate. That's the perfect example because. You guys know I am on the hobby horse, and I think Pizzagate is fundamentally correct in its contours about elite child predation. But but the actual theory of Pizzagate, it's all built on uh, on on just brain detritus, just uh, reactionary uh, cultural anxieties uh, about degeneracy and relationship to the Democratic Party. Just personal prejudices, uh, uh, you know, local uh, local bias curdling into this thing that totally taints it. Uh, and so Trump's hand in in the real life PizzaGate, fucking Jeffrey Epstein, is totally ignored. Uh, unwinding the pre- to all the way back to the all the all of the, unwinding all those pre- premises is is way harder than than I think appealing to people on a material basis is. Uh, so I'd rather really try to hit people uh, in the breadbasket than try to go all the way back to try to deprogram and debug all those lines of cultural code. Uh, because I mean, take a look at the evidentiary uh, gap between what we know about Pizzagate crimes and we know about Jeffrey Epstein's crimes. In Jeffrey Epstein's case, we have dozens of not only witnesses but victims who have testified under oath about what he did to them, who have given them information that only someone who was intimately familiar with him could have had. One of, those, one of the girls uh, who he abused, when they searched his house, they found one of her high school report cards in his fucking house. You have victims. You have evidence. And you have Donald Trump's name on a fucking flight log and a quote bragging about how much he likes partying with Jeffrey Epstein, how much Jeffrey Epstein likes young girls. Who are the victims of Pizzagate? There's not a single purported victim in Pizzagate, except for Madeleine McCann, which is just a total wackadoodle uh, flyer on their part. There's no victims. There's no evidence at all. It's all just imputed. It's, 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 it's what it is. It's decoding. It's decoding The messages uh, in the DNC emails, like you're fucking using your decoder ring to find out if you should drink your Ovaltine in a 50s kids' radio show. It just defangs the whole thing. And now take Alex Jones, before he became just a boring Republican. From the days when he was a real live wire, his famous line is, They're putting chemicals in the water to turn the frogs gay. Of course, that's hilarious, right? Everyone has a good fun with that. (laughs) <laughs> That's stupid. His thinking is, is that there's some sort of evil company who's working to make men, to change gender roles, to undermine their traditional family, starting with the frogs. That's the idea, you fucking idiot. Well, the thing is, is that at the base of that claim, they're, ter- they're putting chemicals in the water that turns the, fra- the frogs gay. That's based on truth. Uh, there's a paper that has studied frogs, exposed to a pesticide called atrazine in which the exposure to the pesticide has caused mutations in their, uh, in their gender expression and led to uh, cases where they've changed sex or become sterilized. Now, that's a great example of capitalism at its worst. This fucking pesticide is used because it increases crop yields and it's therefore increases profits. And any damage to the people or the environment in which it's expressed, that's an externality that they don't have to deal with. That is just a perfect parable of capitalist exploitation. But he has to fucking frame it around cultural anxieties and obscure the truth, the fucking capitalist motive at the heart of turning the frogs gay. You turn the frogs gay because it's cheaper to use this fucking pesticide than the one that's not going to turn the frogs gay. That's it. It doesn't require lizards or Jews or aliens with a 10,000-year plan to get rid of gender. But that's the whole lure of the thing because you're telling somebody a story they want to hear, and the part they want to hear is that they don't have to do anything, that they just have to keep watching. Why do the, they want the frogs gay? Tune in next week. We'll reveal why they want the frogs gay. Oh, you know, it turns out that there were these reptilians who wanted to make the frogs gay. But then there's this other new random race of reptilians who have now come to earth and are now fighting uh for control using false flag attacks you can embroider the thing forever and it'll always be an entertaining journey and you'll never get any closer to actually understanding politics coming together with fellow citizens to fucking try to make the world a better place you will just amuse yourself to death and i will leave with one i will leave you guys with one chilling note i i know i just said that. Conspiracy theory is the province of uh, powerless people who need a way to cope with and express their powerlessness. But uh, there is one way that conspiracy theory can actually be mobilized to political goals as opposed to just the observation of politics playing out. And that is, this takes us back to the 20s, this takes us back to the, the rise of fascism. Because right-wing populism requires an analysis of social dysfunction and an enemy just as much as, the le- as leftism does. But that enemy can't be capital, as we've discussed, because they're committed to maintaining capital. That's their path to power. They can get the people under the streets by denouncing the material conditions of their lives, but they maintain the support of the elite, their money and their uh, freedom from police abuse by protecting capital and not pointing towards capital. And so that's where you put conspiracy theory. That's, you put in the uh, flex capacitor there of, of fascist uh, worldview is, is the fucking conspiracy theory. Look at the white genocide, great replacement narrative that's powering the far right right now, okay? Now, every single component of what these people are claiming is a conspiracy about great replacement, about replacing the white race. These are all 201 processes powered at every point by broad global economic trends created by capitalism and the specific decisions of the ruling class policymakers of the capitalist regimes. So all these effects, so all the stuff they're talking about, millions of people being driven from their home countries to, to seek economic and physical security. That also includes uh, uh, dropping uh, birth rates in the West because it's pretty well established that the degree to which you have a, a advanced capitalist state is the degree to which women taking control of their reproductive destinies have fewer and fewer children. That is a, a an established connection. So these are all things that are phenomenons of capitalism one way or another and can be explained by capitalism. You got NAFTA. Climate change caused droughts. U.S.-backed coups and civil wars. And all of these things have done the same thing. All of them have created this this milieu of, of population uh, migration and and baby gaps. But this is another case where people coming to these decisions themselves, not comparing notes in a, in a context of uh, class awareness, are filtering this reality through their preexisting racial anxieties and their dreads of the other. And so when they see these things, the villain that comes up is once again one carrying out Pointless destruction for inscrutable alien purposes because the Jews want to replace us. Why? Why do the Jews want to replace us? What does that even mean, replace us? They're here too. They're here as much as they want to be. And according to these guys, they control all of the money. Their lives are awesome. Probably couldn't really even get any better. Why, who do they want to replace us with and why? They just, they're just they Jews. They hate your culture. They hate its, its rootedness. They're jealous of it, and they don't want to look at it anymore. They want to destroy it. They want to destroy a civilization that they hate because they can never be a full part of it. That's it. And so that narrative then coheres and then is expressed in that in that cesspool of the internet that sends these things out with no friction coming in any way from anybody else's experience or humanity. All that gets drained out of it. And it becomes now uh, in hardwired in the minds of a lot of young reactionaries in this country in a way that, uh, is now politically valent because it's being expressed by a political party, by, like the anti-Masons. Like, we're returning to that era because of the of the viral nature of memes and information over the Internet. So among the leaders of these movements, there is no interest in confronting the reality that capitalism is driving us all to a breaking point. And the only way that we can defeat them by defeat, by defeat the ruling class, is by uniting around our exploitation, by bringing together the expressed and employed, exploited people of the world together and use the power of our numbers to overthrow them and to reorganize society to the benefit of all. They don't want to talk about that because although that is the only way we survive, Doing it requires crossing a chasm of otherness to a person who is in some way different culturally, religiously, ethnically. And the thought, the mere thought of doing the making oneself vulnerable in that way, of attempting to cross, make the leap of faith and express the vulnerability to try to create solidarity across these divisions that though arbitrary are in the minds of someone conditioned in 20th century America, incredibly powerful, because that thought is too horrifying to contemplate, these people have to turn it into a a cabal of reptiles uh, and globalists who are using this inhuman mass of people who aren't as good as us, actually, because if you look at FBI crime statistics and IQ, blah, 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 and they've severed their connections to other people because they would rather live in the fantasy. All right. Well, there. That's it. I think. Uh, I hope some of this made sense. Uh, if this is. This might have been divided into two parts. I'm not sure. Uh, but thank you very much for listening, and I'll see you guys in the funny days. What kind of Of all dreams, I said that I've got love. You need Satan more than he needs you. You need Satan more than he needs you. It doesn't look like a man. It doesn't.